I'm Rachel Perkins, and you're listening to the Nordic Nation podcast from Faster Skier. In this episode, we have Tara Garrity-Motes, a trailblazer in women's Nordic combined who made the switch this season to biathlon. As we discuss in this conversation, women's Nordic combined could be put on display as an example of gender inequity in sport. Despite the fact that men have competed in Nordic combined at the Olympics since the first Winter Games in 1924, and FIS has organized a men's World Cup season since 1983, the women's counterpart is still not included in the Olympics and only saw its first World Cup season last year. The original 2020-2021 World Cup schedule included four venues plus the World Championships in Oberstdorf, Germany. But due to COVID cancellations, only one event took place. As Tara won this event in Ramsau, Austria, she was eventually named the overall World Cup winner and took home the first ever Women's World Cup Crystal Globe. While she has goals remaining in Nordic combined, Tara feels the move to biathlon was the right one, which you'll hear about in this conversation. Before we jump in, this episode is brought to you by Concept2 and the Concept2 Ski Erg. Concept2 is the designer and manufacturer of the Ski Erg, a training tool for Nordic skiing and for general fitness. Located in north central Vermont, the Concept2 family rose in the summer and skis in the winter. The skier grew out of the time-tested design of the Concept2 rowing machine. As dedicated skiers, we know this much is true. It's not always easy to get out on snow in the winter, or out on roller skis for that matter, in the summer. The skier is a perfect dryland training option for skiers or anybody looking to improve their fitness. The second generation skier allows for a single stick and double pulling. Take your skiing and upper body conditioning to a new level with a skierg. You can find more information about skiergs and their PM5 performance monitors at concept2.com. So to start us off, um, for people who may only know you in the context of your results last season, can you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you got started in the world of, of winter sports in terms of um, just how and when did you learn how to ski and jump and shoot? Yeah, of course. Um, I grew up in a small town in Vermont, West Fairley, Vermont, and I started skiing when I was two years old, um, actually on my living room carpet. <laughs> um, and then when I was eight years old, I started in Fort Sayre Nordic, which is the Bill Koch ski program for juniors uh, in the Upper Valley. And then when I was nine, I started ski jumping in both Hanover, New Hampshire and Lebanon, New Hampshire, um, and kind of progressed through the Eastern ski jumping system. And I started training with Pepe Milosheva in Craftsbury when I was 12 years old. Um, now Craftsbury has like a green team, but back in the day, they just had a junior Bill Coke program that kind of took, took skiers to the college level. Um, I started biathlon when I was 17, uh, sort of because I had a knee injury for ski jumping and had to take some time off. And I competed on the junior national team um, for biathlon for four years, going to four different junior world championships. Um, I had a couple of titles at junior nationals for cross-country skiing when I was a junior and really enjoyed competing in junior nationals every spring as a junior skier. That was definitely a highlight of my junior career. Um, I first started ski jumping on the World Cup in the season of 2014-2015 
and was on the World Cup uh, for ski jumping pretty much all the way until last spring. And then Women's Nordic Combined first started taking off in the 2018-2019 season. So that's when I um, really was able to put that at the center of my career. And also I've been, I did a couple of marathon races uh, as, a, as a cross country skier and was European marathon champion in 2019. And getting into last season a little bit. Um, so it was, it was the first ever season of women's Nordic combined on the, on the world cup. Um, and the original schedule, when it was released, there were four competition weekends plus the world championships in Oberstdorf. But that's not what ended up happening because of COVID cancellation. So can you talk a little bit, um, just talk us through that in terms of, um, yeah, your, your original kind of outlook for the season and just what that was like to be on that World Cup and have having events be canceled? Yeah, so going into last season, uh, I had a pretty optimistic look on the season. It looked like we were going to have four uh, weekends of World Cup, so eight total competitions, and then have Continental Cup competitions in between those World Cup competitions. So more of a full winter of Nordic Combined competitions than I had ever had before. And I was really excited for that. And um, unfortunately, due to COVID, um, FIS canceled a bu bunch of the competitions, mostly on the women's side. There were some venues where they canceled both men and women, but they didn't make any effort to re reschedule the women's events due to the fact that um, women's Nordic Combined didn't have any TV contracts. So they weren't sort of, uh, they didn't have to, to provide a competition to film for the TV crew. And also they weren't gonna get any money for women's Nordic Combined. So because they weren't gonna have you know, any income from the Women's Nordic Combined events, it really just ended up having too big a price tag on it. And they just didn't make any effort to uh, schedule the women's events. That being said, I mean, in terms of price tag and FIS, I feel like they could have been a little bit more creative and actually held some women's events, especially because it was such a historic season. Um, so I was pretty disappointed by that. And even though there were some sound logistical reasons why they didn't have the Women's Nordic Combined events that they gave, I think overall it's kind of just shows how endemic sexism is in some sports still. Yeah. And um, even kind of if the schedule had run according to plan, there were, I think, only something like a third of the World Cup events for women as there were for men. Um, and maybe this is sort of related to what you were just explaining, but um, you know, it seems like infrastructure wise, you're, I believe, jumping on the same jumps, skiing shorter distances on the same loops. Um, so what, what would be some reasons that a venue might cite in terms of not hosting a competition that allowed both women and men? Cost is pretty much the only, only reason that they cite. And again, I don't think the responsibility to host women's competitions should be solely on the venue. I mean, a lot of these venues are pretty small and it is honestly too big of a price tag for them to um, host the women's events without money coming in for TV contracts. But that is definitely something FIS could have foreseen and um, come up with creative ways to overcome. And are those costs, is that prize money and support for athletes or can you be more specific with what the cost 
Um, yeah, that's prize money. And also the, the venue is in charge of putting up uh, athletes that have a certain uh, ranking. So I think, you know, if you have a team that's ranked high, you, they have to put up two or three athletes or female athletes from that group. Whereas if you have a team that's ranked lower down, they're responsible for covering the, you know, room and board of maybe just one athlete and a coach on the team. So, I mean, it, it does rack up to be a bigger a bigger uh, financial toll than a lot of small venues can handle. And given those, those setbacks and the challenges of last year, um, can you talk about what it meant to you to win the Crystal Globe? Yeah, um, it was, like you said, a really challenging year. And there was a lot of ups and downs and not knowing whether they were even going to hand out a Crystal Globe due to the fact that they only had one competition. Um, but when I first dreamed of winning a World Cup in Women's Nordic Combined, it wasn't even a possibility. It wasn't even something that people thought was a realistic goal purely because the sport didn't exist. And to, to finally realize that childhood dream was just kind of a otherworldly experience. It's, it really was a, a dream goal and a true childhood dream that, that wasn't wasn't even on the realm of possibility. So to achieve that is just incredible. And, and something that I don't think a lot of people in this world necessarily get the opportunity to have. All athletes who accomplish goals um, get an amazing feeling of satisfaction that them and, and the people behind them um, achieve this goal. But the fact that I was able to do something that really no one thought was even possible um, 10 years ago was a really incredible, incredible feeling. Can you talk about the experience of, of being presented with the globe when your season was cut short? I think that was sort of happening at a, at a different time um, at the World Championships, I believe, uh, versus I think that last competition that was originally scheduled got canceled. Yeah, so um, it, it's kind of just a bizarre story from start to finish. Um, we had the one the one World Cup in in Ramsau, and that even that was on short notice. Um, we were supposed to have World Cups in in Lillehammer, and then um, in a two weekends in Otapa, Estonia, and both of those events were canceled. And myself and some other women wrote um, letters to FIS and also the Ramsau organizing committee, asking them to just please, please, please try to have one event in Ramsau. Ramsau was scheduled to have the women's ski jumping world cup. So we were hoping that, and, and also the men's world cup. So we were hoping that they could just, you know, find an afternoon for us to have, you know, a competition, which is basically what they did. We competed on Friday um, in, in Ramsau, as opposed to the traditional world cup Saturday, Sunday. So we had that event and then, you know, for a while they tried to uh, reschedule the Lillehammer World Cup um, into February. They had some Continental Cups. Um, and then there was, of course, World Championships. And I was training in Lillehammer, Norway in January. And there was word that there was going to be a World Cup in Lillehammer right after World Championships. And they tried to make that happen. They scheduled it. It was on the FIS calendar. And then the Norwegian government said that they would not allow it. So I think it was probably, gosh, mid to late January, right before I flew back to Central Europe 
for the final preparations for world championships. Um, I heard that they canceled that event and I was by myself in an apartment in Lillehammer, Norway. Um, and it was probably like nine o'clock at night and I heard that they canceled it. And then I realized, wow, like that means I'm the overall world cup winner. And it was, it was super surreal. I mean, I was of course really happy that I had won the overall world cup globe, but having only one competition and kind of feeling like you're an afterthought, um, or in FIS's mind and like having no one to celebrate with because A, it's COVID and B, you're in a foreign land and C, I wasn't even with my team at all um, or any friends was also, it was super melancholy and it was, it was sad. And, um, you know, I just, I just tried to really focus on the positive that like I had achieved a childhood dream and, and that no one could ever take that away from me. At the end of the day, no one will know those details. They'll just know that I won the first ever World Cup globe. And I think it's something that I'll always be proud of. Um, there was a lot of uh, push to try to have a World Cup rescheduled even after that um, in Shonok for the women. Because again, they were holding a men's competition there. It's on a 90 meter hill. It's on the same loop as the men. But the organizers uh, from that venue were just absolutely not interested in holding the women at all, even, even for one competition. Um, so we didn't have a competition there. And then FIS sort of realized like, oh yeah, right. We have to hand out the globe for the women. Their season's over in February, like for World Cup and World Championships events. So I got the word the day before our competition at world championships that FIS was going to hand out the overall world cup globe with the medals at world championships. Um, and it was an amazing experience to get handed the globe, um, and have the national anthem played, but no one was in the stadium. Uh, FIS allowed me to invite a couple of my teammates and my boyfriend was there, um, but it was it was very otherworldly almost. I mean, this is not the image that I had in my head when I had dreamt of winning the World Cup overall globe. You think of um, sort of like an end of season, like your team mobbing the podium, like a celebration of everyone, um, sort of fun celebratory atmosphere. And it just honestly wasn't that at all. Um, so it took a while because of that, I think it took a while for it to, to really hit that I had won the overall globe. And um, yeah, I mean, now that I'm home and I have it and 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 people have congratulated me, I'm I'm really proud of the work I did and the people who support me um, made what they made possible. But it was it was a magical yet quite bizarre experience. Um. Before we get into your move to biathlon, I, I wanted to ask a little bit also about just the state of women's combined in the U.S. Um, it, it seems like regardless of gender, Nordic combined um, is kind of a sport with limited access, whether that's geographical, you don't live near a jumping facility, um, but it also has had challenges with funding. Um, and just to kind of provide some historical context for people who may not know, 
Um, USSA, which is now U.S. Ski and Snowboard, eliminated the Nordic Combined Budget in 2014, um, which essentially forced the sport to create its own organization with USA Nordic. Um, so I'm just wondering how this kind of uh, lack of support from U.S. Ski and Snowboard and, and just sort of those, those funding challenges um, just affect the growth of women's Nordic Combined specifically in the U.S.? They affect, they affect it hugely. I mean, they affect both the men's and women's. Like you said, Nordic Combined is a niche sport and there's not that many venues in the U.S. Um, that enable, you know, young athletes to get into the sport and pursue the sport at a high level. And then on top of it, um, there's just sort of a low level of education on how to train women, I think, or an idea that women and men should be trained differently, which I personally disagree with. But um, being the best in the world, my NGB or USA Nordic didn't cover, you know, a lot of my plane tickets to Europe. They didn't cover training in Norway when I like had a pre-world championship camp because they didn't offer any support mid-season. Um, they don't cover, like I didn't have a coach all last summer because my coach was stuck in the Czech Republic and they wouldn't let me train with the men um, in Park City. So um, they A, don't have that many resources and also aren't that creative in supporting the women, unfortunately. And basically the end result was that to be best in the world, I had to put down $30,000 of my own personal money and, and funds that I had raised um, just, just to get to the starting line. We're not even talking like have an awesome wax tech or um, have a strength coach or have a nutritional coach or um, have a lot of training camps in Europe, just like the bare bones, bare minimum, like barely making it to the starting line at a high level um, that, that I had to pay. And then of course, when you don't have that many competitions and you also aren't um, making equal prize money or anywhere close to it, it became unviable for me. Like there's, there's no way I can do that every year. I'm really, really proud of the work I did and the work that people who helped me did to, to get me there and, and help me be at a high level last winter. And it was an incredible experience and I'm so proud of it. But at the same time, I can't do that every year. Like it's not humanly possible to do that every year. Um, so until Women's Nordic Combined becomes an Olympic sport, we will not get any sort of funding from USOPC, meaning that USA Nordic has to go outside of the USOPC and isn't allocated any funds for Women's Nordic Combined. And frankly, they're not super great at fundraising for Women's Nordic Combined. So um, there's, there's not a super bright future for the women or the men for that matter. Can you talk a little bit more about that, um, just the possibility to, to go to the Olympics and how that kind of grows, grows the sport for the, the, the women in the U.S. And also just sort of, I think that probably allows you to, pe people understand the Olympics, right? So if you're trying to raise money to self-fund your career and looking for sponsors and things like that, that's something that I, I think um, if you can say that you're going to the Olympics, that that opens some doors that um, may not be available otherwise. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect in terms of just that opportunity and what that what that allows or or disallows? 
Yeah, so I think across the board in the US, um, Nordic skiers struggle with funds. And, and that's not something um, that is solely on USA Nordic shoulders. Part of that is that corporate sponsors love to sponsor Olympians. You know, if you say, I'm going to be an Olympian, I have Olympic medal potential, all of a sudden you have a lot of corporate sponsors who want to get behind you and have their name attached to that. But if you aren't going to the Olympics and you can't say that, they don't really care about world championships. They don't really care about World Cup overall. That's a niche sport. They don't see that on their TVs. And frankly, they don't care. Um, but in terms of a business mindset for them, they do care if you're going to the Olympics. They would love to have their brand on that. They'd love to have a piece of that, that media pie. So to have Women's Nordic combined in the Olympics would completely change the game um, in terms of what an individual who has metal potential could raise to, to then have a career. I listened to an interview that you did for USA Nordic's podcast with um, Peter Graves this last January. And one of the things you, you said was just that um, the number one thing that would grow Women's Nordic combined would be for governing national governing bodies to invest. Um, can you explain what you mean by that a little bit and um, whether that that lack of funding from U.S. Ski and Snowboard or, or just the, the um, USOPC, how, how does that play into that statement? Yeah, so I think across the board, people have kind of dropped the balls and it doesn't really matter who dropped the balls. It's just that they're dropped. But I think to improve the situation, if the women's team were either allowed to train with the men or had equal coaching to the men, um, if there was VO2 max testing and strength testing available to the women on a regular basis, um, if they had a full-time cross-country coach, uh, if on junior levels, the women were encouraged to compete in cross-country races and be at a high level in cross-country skiing and take advantage of the cross-country programs all around this country that they could already compete in as opposed to being encouraged to only train with with Nordic combiners. Um, all, of, all of the tools are there in the US to make an extremely good Nordic combiner if you have a creative mindset and a supportive mindset when putting together a team, supporting a team, organizing a team. So essentially Nordic combined and women's Nordic combined in the US is always gonna be a niche sport just like biathlon. But I think with a creative mindset and yeah, again, like really supporting the women and investing in the women and making sure that they have uh, some funding straight from a junior level to go to junior worlds and to go to Alpen Cups and international competitions from a fairly young age. Um, yeah, then I think we truly could have a world-class team of more than just myself. And I, I know that the, the three girls who are junior to me and still on the team, um, Tessa, Alexa, and Annika, are extremely talented, good athletes who work really hard. But from my point of view, which I understand is not everyone's, I just see them not having the resources they really need to thrive as, as young athletes and, and become you know, amazing senior athletes. One other question in this kind of realm. Um, I also listened to an interview that you did on, on the podcast on her turf. Um, and you said something along the lines of um, what we as a collective of people need to do is to disassociate gender with sport and that we should strive for a future that includes a broader scope of role models for people of all genders. 
Can you explain what that means to you in the context of your sports? Um, yeah, I, I think it's really important not for coaches to not put kind of handicaps on female athletes, but also to create a uh, culture of having young men have female athletes as their idols as well. And again, like not associate gender with sport, just look at a skier as a skier, you know, does that skier have really good tactics? Does that skier have really good work discipline? Does that skier have great endurance and really value those um, attributes on, on your team? And those attributes have nothing to do with being a female or a male. And I think also at, in this day and age when um, gender fluidity is becoming more accepted in our culture, it's really important for that to be a safe space, for sports to be a safe space um, for, for young individuals who maybe aren't sure of their identity. Um, and I think that also means that if you give the same opportunity to everyone across the board, um, everyone benefits, you know, men, women, they, they all, they all benefit. If you look at athletes as people and as people who need to grow and um, improve as individuals and as athletes all together, I think it's a much healthier, better thing for everyone on the team, you know, coaches, athletes, parents, younger siblings, everyone. Yeah, agreed. Um, based on the, inter the article that we ran in, in early April about your season, um, it seemed like at the end of the end of the year that you were um, really fired up and, and kind of still had a lot of goals left in Nordic combined. So can you talk about just the decision process in terms of making that move to biathlon and um, sort of, you know, just the, the uh, you know, the, the reasons why maybe that makes sense from a career perspective, but also I'm sure that that's really an emotional decision too. Yeah. I mean, the reasons that I switched for, to biathlon made sense from a logical point of view and a mental health point of view and a physical health point of view. Um, I always will love Nordic Combined. I love the feeling of being in the air and I love the feeling of chasing and um, going fast on skis and the strategy in, in Nordic Combined races. Um, Basically, to be a Nordic combined athlete in this country, regardless of support level or um, anything, you have to be on the road 10 months of the year. And whether that's, you know, training in the summer in Europe or competing on the road in the winter. And due to the fact that I don't have um, a ton of funds, that became even harder, meaning that you aren't necessarily staying in the nicest places and you can't go home for a short point periods of time just to see family and kind of recuperate and um you know we we don't have a pt that travels with us we don't have team doctors that travel with us if i get hurt in february on the road you know maybe i can ask another team to you know help give me some pt but there there was no resources if i you know strained strained my knee or you know hip or anything it was it was up to me to fix it and figure out what i could do to like keep me in one piece on the road. Um, so there's that. And then there's just the mental health aspect of always advocating for your sport, always trying to prove yourself, always trying to prove to the media or FIS or pretty much anyone around that you 
you have a right to be there and you have a right to maybe one day have equal pay and maybe one day have, gosh, more than eight competitions a winter. And I kind of had to just just sit back and, and look at everything and realize that at 28, I didn't want to spend all of my energy on, you know, convincing people that being a female Nordic combiner was okay. I wanted to spend my energy on being the best athlete I could be and having a supportive team around me and maybe even having a little bit of time left over for my friends and family and boyfriend and other other parts of my life outside of being an athlete. Um, I don't I don't know if I'm done with Nordic combined or not. I know that, like you said, there's a lot of goals that I would absolutely love to achieve. Um, I know that um, other uh, high level Nordic combiners have taken breaks of up to four years and come back and been successful. Whether I will be able to do that or not, I don't know. And really, you don't know until um, you you put on skis again and, and see how it feels or jumping skis again and see how it feels. Uh, but I do know that being being a biathlon biathlete right now in my career was a hundred percent the best choice I could have made. I mean, having having a team around me um, that supports me, having all the resources I need to improve as an athlete is just such an amazing, wonderful experience. And I mean, again, biathlon is a really niche sport in the U.S. There's not a whole lot of venues. There's not a whole lot of racing. But the culture and the support I receive here is just a, like a world of difference than Nordic combined. And as you're making that transition, um, like had you had you done any shooting? You kind of kept kept you know like kept that as part of um, just what you would do, um, or or what has been what have been some of the biggest challenges in terms of just making that that shift. So, the last time I shot competitively and um, like on a on a training program was I think nine years ago as a junior junior biathlete um, on the junior national team and then last summer when I was training in Craftsbury I actually jumped in a couple team trial time trials basically just because I needed an intensity workout that day and I wanted company and I and I shot a little bit um and then you know just for fun now and then last summer I'd go to the range and and realize that I still really love shooting and um, realized that I hadn't reached my potential as a biathlete at all. And, um, I really love the mental challenge of shooting. It's, it's very similar to ski jumping on a, on a lot of different levels. And, um, I mean, I, I thought about just being a marathon ski, ski racer this winter, but I think that there's a huge opportunity for me to buy in biathlon and I really want to see what I can make of it. Can you talk a little bit about what your training has been like this summer? Um, you mentioned that you had worked with, with Peppa, Peppa and um, trained in, in Craftsbury in the past. Uh, but what is that tra- what does that shift in your training look like? And um, Yeah, so Peppa was my junior coach. And I really, really uh, always like appreciate her feedback in my skiing. And um, it, it definitely felt like coming home. Um, to Craftsbury after like a long time away which is a really fun feeling I'm working directly with Mike Gibson now who is the head biathlon coach in Craftsbury and um, he he's really great because I mean he knows what works for biathlon in terms of training programs but he also realized that I my skiing was already at 
an okay level and he didn't feel the need to change everything. So he kind of looked at the training program I had used last year and, and we added a lot more volume to it um, and a lot more of the biathlon specific workouts, but we kept um, some things that really worked for me, like plyometrics from ski jumping and, and doing more weights because naturally I don't gain muscle at all. So if I don't do heavy weights and spend some time in the weight room, I lose a lot of my explosive power on the ski course and, and a lot of my speed. So I'm, I'm really enjoying the process of figuring out, you know, what makes me the best biathlete I can be. And obviously we're not anywhere close to figuring that out, but um, I really enjoy that process with Mike, with Mike Gibson. And, and it's a really supportive environment here in Craftsbury. Uh, I, I got a cabin with my boyfriend um, about 10 minutes away from the center uh, last fall. So I, I live there and I have the opportunity to train at the center pretty much whenever year round and, and work closely with everyone at the center. It looks like you've also done some international camps. Um, I think one in the Czech Republic and also attending the, the national team camp in Soldier Hollow. Can you talk a little bit about just what role those have played in your development? Yeah. So like I said before, I was away from biathlon for quite a long time. And while I know that in training, my shooting was looking good and that my skiing felt like at a reasonable level, I really had no, no idea what would happen in a race setting. And Vladimir Cervenka, who used to be the USBA junior national team uh, coach, invited me to just come to the Czech Republic um, in Nova Mestuna Morav and go to Czech nationals and have a training camp around that and I used some airline miles and went off to the Czech Republic um what I hadn't really planned on like immediately when I was planning the trip was that there was summer world championships there and Vlad realized that that was on the schedule too and and we talked to USDA and USDA um was generous enough to let me start there because they didn't have any other athletes who wanted to go so there wasn't really a qualification process I just had to get approval for them so they were very generous in giving me that start and it really helped me um, get back into racing again you know make some race plans and see how they worked see where I really need to improve um, see what is at a reasonable level already so after two weeks in the Czech Republic um, I drove to Austria and because of my World Cup overall rank, I had free skiing on the glacier. So I just got to ski on snow um, and enjoy Ramsau. Ramsau is one of my absolute favorite places in the world to train. And the men's team were, was having a camp there as well. So I, I got to do some distance workouts with my boyfriend, which was really great. And basically I had a really high level uh, training camp um, that month in Europe, just kind of all by myself traveling around. And it was a really fun experience to just, you know, kind of do whatever I want and enjoy, enjoy the European uh, fall. And what will your next few months look like in terms of um, just what races you're planning to compete in and, and just what those, yeah, what those next few months will look like? Um, well, in Soldier Hollow, we went out and had the green team had a camp around the U.S. biathlon uh, first trimester qualifications, and I did pretty well at qualifications. Um, first day was pretty rough. Second day was okay, and third day I had an awesome race, but I took a wrong turn on the race course. 
So, uh, because of that, I did not qualify for the U.S. biathlon uh, first trimester teams on the IBU Cup or World Cup. But it was, I also kind of looked at all the numbers and was like, you know what, I really need to get better at standing shooting. Um, so I think it's a great opportunity for me to be in Craftsbury and focus on standing shooting uh, and getting my ski speed even a little faster for the winter. I am, there's trials, December trials for the second trimester on the IBU Cups and World Cup. So I'm hoping to qualify for um, some international teams there. Worst case scenario, if I don't um, qualify for any of those, I will go to Europe and do some um, long distance racing uh, on, in the marathon circuit. Um, and can you talk about uh, what what is something that you're looking forward to this season in terms of it, you're kind of entering new territory and, and starting fresh in some ways. So what are some of the things that you're looking forward to? Wow, I'm looking forward to so many things. Um, I have an amazing team around me, an amazing coach, and I'm just really looking forward to having kind of a blank sheet and seeing what I can make of all the opportunities that are given to me. Um, I definitely think that as a Nordic combiner, I didn't necessarily have the time or uh, opportunity to be as fast as I could possibly be on cross-country skis. And I think that with a strong team around me, I can I can take my ski speed up a level. And I'm really, really excited for that. Um, yeah, I'm also really excited to not necessarily be in the eye of the media and um, have so much extracurricular things and really just focus on being an athlete and focus on being the best racer I can be. And um, do you see yourself still being an advocate for women in Nordic Combined, or are you ready to kind of have some separation from that world? I have continued to work um, with FIS and the IOC and athlete representatives to make sure that Women's Nordic Combined even gets on the Olympic agenda to possibly vote into the games. That's been a big project of mine this summer. And I'll definitely continue to do that work. And I think that if anything, it's easier now that I'm not in the sport because it's not my day to day. It's sort of something that I'm working on. And if it gets too overwhelming or mentally tiring, I can put it down and do biathlon and it's a very different world. So I will continue to advocate for Women's Nordic Combined and hopefully help get it on the Olympic agenda for 2026, um, but not too much. I'm definitely gonna sort of try to compartmentalize it work on it and then put it down and focus on biathlon. Last question for you, um, sort of taking things outside of sport. Um, what's something that people might be surprised to learn about you that's kind of independent of Nordic combined or biathlon? Hmm. That's a good one. Um, what some people might be surprised to know about me is that I don't, I don't think of myself as a natural advocate or activist on gender equality issues. Um, I've done all this work purely because I want to have a chance to ski. And I, I don't actively, you know, enjoy the spotlight. Like if I could have it my own way, I would just show up to the starting line and ski my heart out and then go home. And it's not that I don't love getting on podiums and love achieving athletic success, but I think in my perfect world, none of this would be an issue and I would just get to be a skier. Um, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Your questions are really great. I really appreciate it when 
reporters do their homework and um, really invest in the story they're, they're working on. Thanks for listening, and thanks again to Concept2 for sponsoring this episode. Head to concept2.com to learn more.